entitled um, The Grand Invitation. And the Grand Invitation has to do with clearly um, evangelism. And so we want to talk a little bit about that. And before we review what we went over last week, I just want to share a, kind of an opening story illustration with you. Um, it began with one of earliest history's earliest recorded instances of biological warfare. In 1347, the Mongol army besieged uh, Genesis, and, and they were the trading post at Kaffa in the Crimea, modern-day Ukraine. What they did is they catapulted bodies filled with bubonic plague victims over the town's walls. And the terrified defenders fled to Italy, history tells us, carrying with them this deadly plague bacteria um, and the rats and and the, the, the fleas that spread them. Over the next three years, the plague spread throughout Europe in the massive epidemic known as the Black Death. And before the epidemic ran its course, it's estimated that 20 million people, approximately one-third to one-half of Europe's population at the time, perished as a result of this. Uh, The coming centuries would see recurring outbreaks of the bubonic plague, which would remain a dangerous, unchecked killer until finally antibiotics were developed in the 20th century. Though the Black Plague is one of the most infamous uh, epidemics in history, it's not the only one. The influenza epidemic in 1918 uh, killed an estimated 30 to 50 million people. And several million more people died about the same time because there was an outbreak of typhus in uh, uh, Western Europe. Other infectious diseases today, we know malaria, yellow fever, recent times, AIDS, things like this, have claimed uncounted millions of victims. But there's one plague that is far more widespread and far more deadly than all these combined. The Puritan writer Ralph Venning called it the plague of all plagues. It affects every person who ever lived. It's 100% fatal. Unlike other plagues, which can only cause physical death, this plague can cause spiritual and eternal death as well. We know that as the plague of sin. Because of Adam's fall, the entire universe was, the entire human race was plunged into sin. Even David in in Psalm 51.5 recounts, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 83, or Psalm 58.3, he adds this, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Not only are all people sinners by nature, they're also sinners by action. We're sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by action. We just got done with Romans, and Paul wrote out in Romans, there's none righteous, not even one, in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none 
No man who does not sin, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 says that. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 says, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin. Proverbs says no one can say that. No one can say that. So we've been looking at this idea of sharing this truth of the gospel with a lost and dying world, the grand invitation. And last week we looked at the mark of true conversion. And we said that if someone is truly converted, repentance is going to be the mark of their conversion. You're going to see it. You're going to see a change. And we talked about repentance being a turning from God or to God from sin. Let me get it right. Repentance is a turning to God from sin. Uh, It's godly sorrow for one's sin and a resolve to turn from it, John MacArthur said. R.C. Trench said, It's that mighty change in mind, heart, and life wrought by the Spirit of God. Wayne Grudem defines repentance this way. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Repentance is a gift that God grants us by His sovereign grace, which results in a change of thinking, a change of feeling, a change of behaving. That's what repentance is. And we looked at several examples, but we also said that repentance, the presentation of the gospel is not complete if we don't talk about repentance. And we looked at different characters. We looked at John the Baptist. We looked at Jesus. We looked at the disciples. All of them included in their gospel message a message of repentance. It's always been the foundation of a biblical call to salvation. Always. And then secondly, we said that those who are saved will be marked by repentance as an ongoing way of life. It's not just a one-time thing. This marks your entire life from the point that you come to Christ from that time forward. And we, we made the statement, we will never be sinless, but as we walk with Christ, we will sin less. That's just the role of the Holy Spirit, the sanctification process that happens in our lives. And then thirdly, we said when sinners repent, God welcomes them with great joy. And we looked at at Luke 15, where it talked about the lost son coming home. And we also closed the message with the result of no repentance. If you have no repentance in your, your heart and in your life concerning Christ, you will stand before God one day and he will say, depart, I never knew you. Even though you may have done wonderful things, you may have been in church every week. Maybe baptize, maybe take communion, all those things. Helping the homeless, witnessing. But if you don't have a sincere repentance, life marked by repentance as a result of change in your life caused by transformation by the Spirit of God through Christ, you will not be ushered into eternity with God. You will have your place in the lake of fire along with all the other unrighteous, those who have fail to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Well, today we want to talk about witnessing. And I want to talk about wisdom in witnessing. Wise witnessing. What does that mean? Witnessing wisdom. And I want to read for you out of Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. This gives us some instruction on how, as believers, when we leave this place and we go out into a lost and dying world and we have it, our intent to share the gospel with those, how to do it. So follow along in your Bibles as I read this text for us. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, 
continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be, first of all, gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, when we talk about witnessing, most people, most Christians, just get a little nervous. It's not something, oh, I can't wait to go witnessing. I mean, there's some people like that. But most of us are not that way. There's a lot of fear involved. There's a lot of guilt involved. Uh, fear because we've all experienced that, that time when God's opened up a door for us to share the gospel with somebody. And all of a sudden we get the butterflies in our stomach and we get a dry mouth and we're thinking, oh, no. You know, should I really do this? Maybe they're going to reject. Maybe they're going to reject me. Maybe they won't be my friend anymore. Whatever it might be. What should I say? What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Um, And then we also deal with guilt when it comes to witnessing. Because we've all been in experiences in our lives, I'm sure, where God has opened up a door, but we didn't walk through it. (laughs) You ever done that? I've done that many times. You know, God opens up a door. He's like screaming, share the gospel. And for whatever reason, you're busy, you're on your way somewhere else, whatever, you don't have time, or it just, you just can't get the words out, and you walk away, and all the way home, you're just going, man, I wish I just would have said this, or I wish I could have asked him this question, or I wish I could have done this. And we feel guilty as a result of that. And a lot of times, there's extremes when it comes to sharing our faith, when it comes to evangelism. Some people say, well, you know what, I don't have the gift of evangelism, and I'm not good with talking to people, so I'm just going to live my life for Jesus. And hopefully, that will be sufficient. Well, if that's your approach, uh, you're going to have to live a life, a Christian life, better than either Jesus or the Apostle Paul. Because both of them not only lived the life, but what did they do? They shared the gospel. They shared the gospel. They also spoke to sinners about salvation. They were willing to not just live the life, but speak the life. And a godly life should always be the foundation of bearing witness. We don't want to have our, our whole life in disarray and go out there and, and talk about Jesus. There's people like that, unfortunately. Um, but it's never adequate if you never tell people about Jesus. You can't have the mindset, well, I'm just going to live for the Lord. And, you know, if they ask me a question, well, then we'll cross that bridge when you get to it. Uh, because you know what they're going to do? They're going to assume, oh, you're, you're just a moral person. There's a lot of moral people. Mormon church is filled with moral people. But spiritually, they're on the wrong side of history. They're on the, on the wrong side of the truth. They live wonderful family lives. They take care of their own. They're always helping people, helping. But you know what? They don't know Christ. They don't know the Christ of the Bible. And then you have... On the other hand, you have people who, you know, just say, well, I'm just going to live my life and I'm not going to say anything. But then you have other people, and we've all probably done this early on, usually, when we first came to Christ. I I remember when I first came to Christ, you know, there was all zeal and no wisdom. (laughs) 
All zeal, no wisdom whatsoever. So I was telling everybody, they're going to hell, and they need Jesus, and, you know, he's changed my life. And they're looking at me like, who are you? You know, because, first of all, they knew me. And, you know, over time they saw a change. But initially people don't see a change. A change takes time, even though the change may be automatic. But, you know, it takes time for them to observe the change that Christ has made in your life. And some people just go out there and assault people in Jesus' name <laughs> with their 20-pound King James Bible. And, you know, hey, you're not going to repent. And, and, it, it, and that's, not the, that's the other extreme of not saying anything. Okay? And so we have to find a happy medium here. Um, a lot of those people who are very good at that, they like to hear themselves talk. And they'll, you know, they can go out and, and, and share the gospel very easily. A lot of them, sometimes they're salesmen. They just they look at it as selling something. You know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to win people for Christ. And, and, and a lot of times they're doing it in the flesh. They're not doing it in the spirit. And they're accosting total strangers, giving them this gospel pitch. And um, most people will just nod their head and kind of move them along the way. And so you want to be, be careful. Uh, so those who are silent witnesses for Jesus gain a further excuse. Well, I don't want to be like that guy. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to be the guy that puts a soapbox up out on the corner and, and, and shares the gospel, which is a legitimate way to do it. There's nothing wrong with street preaching, by the way. But I think that you have to be, first of all, have your life in order to do it. And I think you also have to be gifted at it. I think God has to really give you a burden for that. And so the Lord doesn't want us to be silent witnesses, but he doesn't want us to go out here and assault people in Jesus' name either. So what we're going to find today is where Paul gives us some information so that we can find that happy medium. He wants us to be wise witnesses who obviously live lives that are honoring to him and who take advantage of every opportunity to talk graciously to lost people about the Savior that we hold so dear. So to be wise witnesses, walk with wisdom and talk with grace to those who are outside Christ. This is what he says. He says this in verse 5. He says, conduct yourselves. Walk in wisdom. That's literally what that means. As you're going, do it wisely. Walk with wisdom. Live your life with wisdom before those who are outside of Christ. And then in verse 6, he says, not only do that, but... Talk with grace. Be gracious in your talk. You don't need to go out there and scream at people and spit in their face and yelling at them and, you know, telling them they're going to hell. That's not going to win anybody over for Christ, even though the message may be sincere. So we have to use some wisdom. So talking without the walk will cause the world to what? Point at you and say, oh, you're just one of those Christian hypocrites. I know you. I saw you at the bar last week. Who are you telling me about Jesus, right? That, you know, there's no place for that. So it has to be both the walk and the talk melded together in a life that honors Christ, and then we can be used for his glory. Well, first of all here in our outline, we see to be wise witnesses, we have to walk with wisdom. As I said, that word walk is a metaphor. It, it, it's talking of a, a steady way of life. You're, you're going down a path and you're continuing down the path. You're not branching off in different directions. You're not going up and down on hills or whatever. You're, you're going in a certain direction at a certain pace and you just continue to do it. That's what our lives are. That's what they should be marked by. But unfortunately, when you look within the church even, when you look at people who claim the name of Christ, their lives are anything but a, a nice little walk down a path. 
It's more like, wow, they just went off a cliff. What's going on? Oh, now they're trying to scale back up. And now they're in a, 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 you know, a cesspool of mud. I mean, what's happening with these people? And they're constantly like this in their Christian life, in their Christian walk. And that's, that's not a good thing either. And so we have to be consistent as we live for the Lord. But he also says here, walk in wisdom. And that, that word is an Old Testament word that comes from our kind of an English vernacular would be skill. Live skillfully is what he's saying. It's used back in Exodus chapter 36 when it talks about the craftsmen building the tabernacle. That's what it's talking about. Is they did it wisely. They did it with skill. The book of Proverbs often contrasts the wise man with who? With the person who has no wisdom, the fool, right? And so that's what the book of Proverbs constantly says. If you, if you don't have wisdom, then you're foolish. The fool, what does he do? He disregards God's commands. He disregards the directions that God gives us how to live. But the wise man basically skillfully orders his life according to God's word. That's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to live. It's almost kind of like if you were building your, your house. You started with a foundation and you're putting the walls up and you, know, you got everything done. You're very tedious. And then it came time to go buy the furniture. Brand new house. And you went down to the dump and got an old couch and a ratty old table and smelly old this and that. And just kind of chucked it in the living room. There you go. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fit. You wouldn't do that. Okay, why? Because why would you create something so beautiful and then just pollute it with, with stuff that's not? You wouldn't want to do that. So to walk in wisdom produces a beautiful life. And so you need to spend time planning what furniture you want to buy, what it looks like, all those things. Um, when Paul says that we are to walk with wisdom toward out Siders, he's saying here that he means that we are to live in line with God's word so that those who are outside of Christ, those who are not Christians, will see something different in us. They'll see the beauty of Christ in us and the relationship that we have with Christ as it reflects God's glory. And they'll say there's something different. Uh, they ought to be able to see the fruit of the Spirit in us, which could also draw them to the Savior. God wants to use us in this way. And by the way, I've said this before, but in Galatians so many times, I've talked to believers all the time, and they say, well, you know, uh, I I don't have all the fruits of the Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the fruit. It's not plural, it's singular. Joy, peace, all those things. It's one fruit. You don't have the privilege of looking at the basket of fruit that God's given you and say, well, today I'm just going to be joyful. I'm not going to be patient. I'm not going to be loving. I'll just be joyful. Or I'll be the, you don't have that privilege. Because the Bible says that when God saves you, he transforms you. He gives you everything pertaining to life and godliness. You are fully equipped to live the life that he's called you to do it. And so what a wonderful thing. God could have just saved us and then said, hey, you're on your own. But he didn't do that. He desires to equip us to live lives for his glory. Why do you think that's a pressing thing on his heart? Because you know what? He knows that when we're here on earth, and we're claiming the name of Christ, guess what? People are watching. People are watching you. People are watching you get up Sunday morning and go somewhere in your car with a little black book under your arm. They're watching you. 
And, you know, people watch you at the grocery store. People watch you while you're driving. That's always a sobering thing for me. But, you know, that's why I don't have any bumper stickers on my car. But, you know, <laughs> now I try to, try to do what I can to obey the laws, but sometimes, boy, some of the crazy drivers out there, they get the, the best of me. See, witness is always an overflow of our walk. That's all it is. It's nothing more complicated than that. It's your love for Christ and your desire to live a holy life just kind of overflowing and affecting everybody around you. I remember at our college graduation, we had J. Vernon McGee speak. And wonderful man of God, and he was just coming down with, uh, uh, not cerebral palsy, what did he have? Uh, the ones where you shake. Parkinson's disease. And so, you know, it was a high, we were up on the, the hill there in La Mesa, California, a big cross there, and that's where our graduation was held. And I remember he got up to speak, and, you know, he was kind of <clears throat> graveling in his voice. Somebody reached up and gave him a glass of water. And he's holding this glass of water, and he goes, well, I don't know what, and he starts shaking like this, and the water's going everywhere, you know. He's, and he said, I don't know what you want me to do with this, because I can't really hold this. And by the time he took a drip, it was all over the place. But he used that as an illustration. He said, you know, this cup that I was trying to hold carefully as I was trying to drink it, it got made a mess of my notes. It did mine too, actually. But it got, got water everywhere. And he said, that's what our lives should do. Our lives should just kind of mess up the people around us in a good way for Christ. As you hang out with your friends, as you hang out with your coworkers, as, as you go to school, whatever it might be, somehow Christ should just be overflowing to the point where it just brushes off on them a little bit. It pushes them more toward Christ. And so a wise walk always begins in private and then spills over to public. It always begins in private. See, that's the problem sometimes in the church today. I really made a mess up here. Uh, <clears throat> in the church today, when we have, you know, maybe sometimes celebrities come to Christ or some well-known figure in the community, and maybe they come to Christ on a Wednesday, and by Sunday morning they got them up there giving a speech to the congregation. Not a good idea, by the way. You know, and we've seen that happen with various celebrities with Bob Dylan, a bunch of people, you know, the name, the name of Christ, and then, boy, wow, it doesn't seem like it, it sticks or something. Who knows? But people are watching that. See, a wise walk always begins in private. How are you in your relationship with God when no one's watching? That's the key. Not just how you act at church. Anybody can fake that for two or three hours. But how are you at home? When your spouse leaves their dirty socks on the floor or doesn't make the bed or you get home and there's no dinner on the table, how are you then when no one else sees? You know, you, we have to be careful. So there's a, a connection here between verses 2 and 4 and verses 5 and 6. And that, that connection basically is walking a life of wisdom begins privately through Prayer. He says in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So a private walk with God in prayer is the kind of the, the foundation, the fundamental thing that needs to happen in your life if you're going to be any kind of witness for Christ at all. If it doesn't start there in prayer, 
you're really barking up the wrong tree. And so Paul goes on in verse 3 to ask for prayer. He says, hey, pray for me because I want to share the right message with people. So prayer is the first step in wise witnessing. Before you talk to a person about God, it might be best to talk to God about that person. Does that make sense? So we need to do that. We need to make sure that, you know, boy, you know, we're not just barging into the coffee shop and trying to hand out, you know, but I want to be praying for these people or your workplace or wherever it might be. There's a helpful book that that talks about prayer, um, specifically in evangelism. Uh, It's called Concentric Circles of Concern. It's, It's published by Broadman Press. Concentric Circles of Concern. It was written by Oscar Thompson. And he basically lays out to his students to make a list of people, which he calls concentric circles of concern. And so you're in the center of the circle. You've got to be right with God, is his, his idea, before you can be his witness. And moving out from the circle, the center, uh, in the next circle is your immediate family, your relatives, maybe your close friends, neighbors, business associates. You know, and it just keeps on going out. And maybe maybe someone you don't even know uh, further out on the, the concentric circle list there. And you list each person's needs. You begin to pray for them. And you ask that God would engineer circumstances in their lives somehow to draw them to Christ. And that you're willing to be part of that process. Pray that you would be a channel of his love, a picture of his grace. That he would give you opportunities to speak truth into their lives. And look for needs to help each one of those individuals on your list. That's a wonderful way to go about it. Because his thesis basically is this. The most effective evangelism takes place in the context of loving relationships. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, that's, that's the way to reach out people. is to reach out to people that you have a relationship with where lost people can see changes that Christ is making in your life. You know, I can you know, run downtown Redwood City and grab somebody and start sharing the Lord with them. And God may use that. Who knows? But they don't know me. They don't know what God has done in my life. They haven't seen any transformation in my life. But if I call up a a buddy from high school who knew me back then and then knows me today, and they see a change, well, that, that gives me an open door to share with them why that change is there and why Christ is an effective change agent in your life. A lot of times as a youth pastor, I remember we'd take kids away to camp and and some of the kids were genuinely saved. And they would go back home to their unsaved parents. And it maybe took 48 hours before that parent was calling me. What did you do to my, my child? And some of them were good calls. Most of them that quick were not good calls. They're trying to tell us we're going to hell and we can't go to this church anymore. We need to come to your church. And it's like, well, you know, and I had to kind of pull in my office and say, look, this is the best way to witness to your parents by just, you know, full-blown sharing the gospel with them in that way. The best way for you to be an effective witness in your home to your parents is simply do what they do. Do what they tell you to do. Do it with joy. Do it with love. Do it on time clean your room, and then do a little bit more. (laughs) 
And when they see a change in you from someone who has a a room that looks like a disaster to someone who comes home from camp as a new transformed person in Christ, realizing, wow, they need to get their life in order, and you begin to straighten things up, and you begin to live for the Lord before your parents, pretty soon they're going to be asking you, what in the world happened to you? See, but so many times we want to get the, the cart before the horse. So we want to tell everybody all this stuff without living it. And a lot of times that doesn't prove effective. Now, there's nothing wrong with telling those around us, maybe even we don't know about Christ. God can use that. But it's a lot more effective to be praying for those people and to, out of that loving relationship that you have with them is an important thing to realize. That's why thankfulness in prayer is important. A life of thankfulness stems from submitting your life to God's sovereign hand. And that's what prayer is. You know, he, 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 he makes it very clear that, you know, sometimes we have to make sure that we are understanding what God wants us to do. You know, don't grumble and complain. Why? You're just going to stand out as somebody who grumbles and complains about everything. But if you begin to go to the Lord with your problems, if you go to the Lord with your issues, with a thankful prayer, that's such an important part of that whole, that whole uh, process. So we want to have prayer as the foundation. And then also walking with wisdom occurs outwardly by making the most of every opportunity. Okay, making the most of every opportunity. He says there in verse 3 that, that God would pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word. That should be a daily prayer in the life of a believer. The moment your, your feet hit the floor and you're up and you're out of bed, you should be saying, Lord, I'm yours today. How are you going to use me? How, what door are you going to open up today that I can share the glorious gospel with someone who's yet to believe in Christ? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, he says to, Paul says to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. You know, some people have a natural boldness, but I found most Christians don't have that. And so we need to pray for it. Most of us tend to be timid in our witness. We don't tend to be bold. And there's different kinds of boldness. You know, there's boldness like a a bull in a china cabinet wrecking everything. That's not what we want to be. You know, we want to be gracious and all those things, but as God opens the door, we need to be able to speak with boldness about Christ. Don't be ashamed of that. This is the message that saved you. And I'm sure when you first heard the gospel the first time, you didn't go, oh, yeah, I want to be gloriously saved. You probably took a time, probably several people shared with you, maybe over a period of years before you came to Christ. But when he came and transformed you, wow, you you just could not believe this happened. And you were a new person in Christ. You know, if you bash in the door that God is not opening, you're not doing anything that's honoring to Christ. See, and this is where your mentality when it comes to evangelism, evangelism is something, we're just a tool God is just using us as a tool to reach out as he works in the hearts and lives of people. So sometimes God's working in somebody's heart and life. You know what? Frankly, sometimes he's not. (laughs) And so we don't know 
how that works. We can't see the, the supernatural world. We don't know what's going on in people's hearts and minds and lives. And so we have to be prayerful about, okay, do I say something more here or not? And if you're wondering how far do you push it, I mean, what if you want to talk to a neighbor about Christ? Well, you know, if you've never talked to the neighbor at all, other than going, huh, you know, like this as you leave the house, you might want to pray about starting a relationship with the neighbor first. You know, rather than just going over and dropping a track on his windshield and, and uh, you know, telling him he's going to hell unless he repents or something, that wouldn't be very effective. You want to establish a relationship with them. Once you establish a relationship with them, then you can get into the deeper things of life with them. And God will open up doors. But so many times we're so busy with life, we're so busy with our own families, we're so busy with work, guess what? We don't have any time for anybody else. And that's not the way God expects us or intended us to live. And so ask yourself, has God opened a door for you to speak about Christ to others? Maybe it's family members, maybe it's co-workers. Um, if God opens the door and you don't go through it, then guess what? The opportunity's lost. That's why he says make the most of every opportunity. The idea is God's got opportunities lined up. You know, it's kind of like if you were a salesman and it was your first day on the job. And you went in and the manager came over and said, hey, you know what? Here's a list of 10 people who are looking for our product. Go for it. You don't have to do any cold calling. We've already set up 10 10 interviews for you. Just call them on the phone and sell them something. You know, that would be a whole different approach to that versus you showing up the first day and the manager telling you, you know what, you need to find some people to sell this stuff to. Now get going. You know, what do you do, right? If you have no leads, you don't have any of those things. Um, And so God has already provided us a list here. Here are some opportunities for you to share the gospel with people. And some of these individuals, you know what, I'm already working. Some of these individuals have already been witnessed to. Some of these individuals are ready. They're ready for the gospel. As soon as they hear it from you, they're going to repent and believe. Some of them, you're not even going to see the fruit. That's for somebody else's time. But see, it's, we're just one link in the chain. Sometimes we get to see the whole thing flourish. Sometimes we don't. I was reminded of Paul and Steve, who came to our church for years. And Paula became a believer, and, and her husband was coming faithfully but just wasn't there yet. And, and uh, they were here for quite a while. And they ended up moving down near Cambria. And I thought, oh, okay, well, just keep praying for him. I mean, I think he's, he was at a, a church for, I don't know what it was. It was probably under six months. And he gloriously gets saved. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. That's not even fair, Lord. You know, you're sowing and you're doing all this stuff. And then, well, but you know, that's how it works sometimes. We don't know God's plan, God's purpose. We just know God's call to us to go and to share the message. We're not responsible for the results. Do you get that? We're not responsible for the results. We're just responsible to serve the food to the individual. If they throw it off the table and shake their fist at God, so be it. But we're there to serve them the message of the gospel. That word there, making the most of every opportunity, literally it means redeeming or buying up the opportunity. Buying up pictures of a businessman or somebody who's an investor who knows 
an opportunity when they see it. If you've ever seen the show Shark Tank, okay, these guys, billionaires, and they sit there, and people come in and pitch their, their invention or their business to them. And some of the people that actually get to be on that show and have them as investors, you know what? Then they do a follow-up, and they say, yeah, you know, they were making this stuff in the garage. Now they own a, you know, several hundred thousand square foot factory, and they're making millions of dollars off this product. Why? Because they, they had the, the opportunity. They had somebody who knew something about the business. And that's what this is saying. You know, he, he quickly moves in before the opportunity is gone. The moment that opportunity is gone, and sometimes you see it on the show, you know, a shark will hesitate to invest or whatever, and somebody else gets the business instead. We need to make sure that we're making the most of every opportunity, that God leads people across our path. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't be worrying. Well, what if they respond this way? You know what? You're just a, a link in the chain. You're just there to deliver the message that God has laid on your heart for that person. We need to be a careful shopper we need to know when things are going on sale you know that ha- that's the idea that we're making the most of every opportunity we're redeeming we're buying up every opportunity that god gives us you know a lot of us i'll speak for myself sometimes we miss opportunities because my mind's in a hurry i'm off somewhere doing something whatever and god opens up a door but you know what i walk right by it and, you know, and then I remember, oh, man, I should have stopped talking to that person. I should have said this. Sometimes I've even, this happens on planes sometimes. You go, you know, you're preparing for a trip, and I'll load up my little carry-on thing with a bunch of tracks and, you know, the million-dollar bills and all this stuff. And I have all these good intentions, you know. And I get on the plane, and it's, it never works out, you know, for whatever reason. And, and so it's, it's kind of frustrating sometimes. But the intention is to be, you know what, look for those opportunities, Paul asked for prayer so that when God opens the door, and this is what's important, when God opens the door, we're not to open the door, he's to open the door, that we would speak forth the gospel. That's what his prayer was. Lord, when, you, when the door is there and the opportunity, just help me get it right. You know, just help me speak the gospel in a way that's loving and gracious. Uh, now remember, at this time he's confined in prison, but he's still looking for opportunities. He's still looking for opportunities. And that should be our mindset as well. You know, sometimes, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You talk to people who, who uh, you know, have lived a long Christian life and maybe they're in retirement and, you know, well, I'm retired now. Well, that doesn't get you off the hook. You know, God still has opportunities for you. And, you know, I'm blessed. Sometimes we go over to the, the, uh, the Brookdale there and Keith's always introducing new people to us when we go there. It's like, well, I just wanted them to come. You know, it's, it's such a, a, a neat thing to see somebody who's interested in someone else's spiritual welfare, uh, you know, even, even though they're, they're up in age, whatever, it's, it's important, see? And, and that's so, so it should be important for us as well. So if you get the opportunity to talk with a, a lost person about Christ, the next question is, what do you do? If God opens up the door, how do you handle this? Well, to be wise witnesses, first of all, we have to talk with grace to those who are outside of Christ, we need to talk with grace to those who are outside of Christ. There's first things here. First, we have to understand the content of the gospel. We have to understand what is the gospel. And that's why this upcoming conference is important. You'll hear that message as well, but we're just going to go over it a little bit today. Talk about the content of the gospel. You know, if you've ever got muddled down when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, welcome to the club. It happens to all of us. 
You know, even Paul, the Apostle Paul, asked for prayer that he would make the gospel clear. And sometimes, which has been my experience, sometimes, you know, God opens a door and you're trying to be a good steward and you're trying to share the gospel and you walk away from that experience and you're just going, man, I just felt like I had marbles in my mouth. I don't think I made any sense. And then the next day the person calls you and they go, you know, when you shared this with me, God was just showing you're going, what? You know, and we've all who've taught the word or whatever had, had those occasions. You know, you think up, you're just up there talking and nobody's listening or whatever. But then God uses your ineptness, your, your confusion for his glory. And so that's what, that's how we should look at evangelism. You know, don't feel that you have to be at a certain stature in your Christian life or you have to read so many books on, on evangelism or you have to do this or you have to memorize so many verses. You know what people want to know? They want to know, does Christ work or not? Is this real or not? So if you can just simply relate to them, it's real because this is why. God has changed my life. And here's why. Here's the kind of person I was before I came to Christ. Here's what happened when I came to Christ. This is the message I heard. And as a result, I mean, now I have peace with God. I'm living for him. And it's glorious. That's what people want to know. They don't, they don't need to, you don't need to dial down on all the, the apologetical arguments and, and evangelism classes and all that stuff. Just share what Christ has done in your life. But the gospel, the content of the gospel is important because the content of the gospel is what saves them. Your testimony will not save them. Do you understand that? Talking about your church will not save them. Inviting them to your church will not save them. The gospel message is what shares them, or what saves them. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 New Testament epistles, and he continually asked for prayer to make sure that he was clear in presenting the gospel. He refers to it, the gospel, as the mystery of Christ for which I have been in prison. The mystery of Christ. In other words, the gospel message always doesn't make sense to people. It just doesn't, because it's a supernatural message. Mystery refers to a truth that has been previously known, but has now been revealed. And that's what the gospel is. So every person, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, can now enjoy a right standing and equal access to God through faith in Christ. What a glorious thing. But you have to start with the gospel. What's the gospel? It starts with man's need. It starts with the concept, the gospel concerns man as sinners. It considers man as sinners. We've touched that early on. Our sin has what? It's alienated us from God because God is holy. Because he's holy and just, God cannot just brush away our sins. He can't just close his eyes and pretend like it didn't exist. There has to be a penalty. The penalty has to be paid. And God has declared that the penalty for our sin is what? Death. It's death. And not just physical death. I mean, that's a result of sin as well. But it also speaks of spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from God. No amount of good works, no amount of money can pay the penalty. But the glorious message of the gospel is God did what we cannot do. God did what we cannot do. In love, what did he do? He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. Jesus Christ was fully God fully human. Wait a minute. How could he be fully God and fully human? I don't know, but that's what the Bible says, and that's what I'm sticking to. When you can understand it, give me a call. Can't understand it. I'm not God, but that's the message. He was 100% man, 100% 
God. And yet he lived a perfect life. He was a human without sin, which is hard for us to conceive. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father. And so when it came time at the end of 30-some years for him to die on a cross, his, his death could be considered a substitutionary death. Because, see, someone had to die. Someone had to pay for the sins of all those who would ever believe in Christ. God just couldn't wish it away because God is a just God. And so how did he proceed to pay for these sins? Well, he took his son and he said, you know what? Here's what we're going to (laughs) do. You're going to go down there. You're going to live 30-some years. And then you're going to go to a cross. You're going to die as a perfect human and yet fully God. And you're going to take upon yourself the sins of everybody who will ever put their faith in you for salvation. That's going to be placed upon you. Even though you're perfect, you've never committed any sin, you're going to feel the weight of everyone's sin who would ever put their faith and trust in him. And in love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, down here to do just that. And he paid the debt that we deserve. He paid it for us. It'd be like if you owed somebody a debt for something and someone else came along and said, you know what, I want to take care of this for that person. You don't even have to know about it to benefit from it. I can go to the person that you owe the debt to and say, hey, you know what, here, I'm going to pay, pay so-and-so's bill for 100 bucks, so forget it, it's gone. And the next time you see that person, hey, I owe you that 100 bucks. Oh, no, no, taken care of. Well, what do you mean? It's taken care of. Well, who paid for it? None of your concern. It's done. See, what, what a glorious thing. See, God has already secured payment for our sins, for those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. He paid the debt that the sinners deserve. And just to make sure that we understand that it worked, God raised him from the dead on the third day, bodily, okay, as a, as a way that, hey, the check's cleared, we're all good here. He offers us full pardon and eternal life to every sinner who will turn from his sins and trust in the risen, glorious Savior. Now, to communicate that clearly, it's good to know some verses. There's a couple verses there in your outline. We, we mentioned some already. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's one. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we talk about man's need, but we also have to talk about God's provision. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, not of works lest any man should boast, the Bible says. What's that mean? God has already provided freely for your salvation. It cost him dearly through his son, but for you, the cost is simply trusting in it. If I came up to you and said, you know what, I want to give you something. Here, here's a gift, an envelope. It's got, got something in it for you. Here, take it. If you don't take it, guess what? You're not going to benefit from what's in the envelope, right? kind of common sense. I mean, if I just go, well, there, there it is, and you walk away and you never open up the envelope, you're not going to receive the benefit of that gift. It's the same way with our salvation. God has given us this gift, and until you open it up, until you put your faith and trust in his claim of salvation that he is offering you, you're not going to be able to work for it. And the, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that's all for good reason, because if we could work for our own salvation, trust Trust me, we would. (laughs) And if somehow we could get to heaven on our own, which you can't, we would. And if we did, guess what? We'd be boasting big time. 
How'd you get here? Oh man, I, I fed people in India for years and I did this. No, oh, I went to Africa and I, uh, Haiti, oh, blah, 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 blah. I was a church member. I did. Oh, we'd be boasting up all kinds of things. But when we get to heaven, why are you here? By the grace of God. It's the only thing we can answer. That's the only thing we can answer. Any other answer is heresy. And that's what Romans 4, 4 and 5 says. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. In other words, when you go to your job and you, you get paid whatever, 10 bucks an hour, and you, you work 10 hours, you get 100 bucks. You know, if the guy came over and said, well, here, here's 20 bucks. Oh, wait a minute. I just work 10 hours. I get $10 an hour. That's not, that's not right. Why? Because you're due something. But look at what it says. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, we have no righteousness of our own. The only righteousness we ever can have is that is credited by God to us through Christ. And that's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those are some verses that you can put to memory. But one verse stands out, and I don't think I put this in your, in your notes as we close up here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 if you, if you have to memorize a verse, memorize this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul writes this. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. <laughs> so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to share a verse with someone who explains the gospel very succinctly, very simply... That's the verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, who? Those who would put their faith in Christ. God made him. Who's doing it? God did it. See, that's when you go out to evangelize. Don't think you're doing anything. You're not doing anything. You're just being obedient. You know, you're, you're just sharing a message that God has endorsed with someone. If they get saved, you don't get to, bat, you know, clip a little badge of honor to your chest. The glory goes to God. He made him who is Christ, Christ, who knew no sin. Christ was perfect. Christ lived a life here for 30-some years. He never, ever committed one sin in thought or deed. I know that blows our minds. How could he do that? We talked last week, I think it was, in the men's thing. Someone brought up, well, uh, you know, maybe it was timing. Maybe because he lived back then and, and things weren't as bad as they are today. Oh, they were just as bad back then. They had just as much, you know, maybe it took a different, different way. I mean, today we have smartphones and all that stuff. But, I mean, he's God. He's not going to sin. And so he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't give in because, well, you know, Jesus has an iPhone, so he's more tempted now. <laughs> he would still be perfect in every way. He would be impeccable. He'd be sinless. And that's told to us throughout Scripture. Um, he even asked his Jewish opponents, which one of you convicts me of sin? And they had no answer. They couldn't answer him. His enemies couldn't answer him. So he was perfect in every way, and yet he was made, it says, to be sin. To be sin. This is very important to understand theologically, because some people say, well, that means Jesus became a sinner. No. No. And he was not punished for any sin of his own either. When it says that he became sin, it means that the Father was going to treat him as if he were a sinner. By charging to his account the sins of everyone who would ever put their faith and trust in him for salvation. 
That's what that means. He took it upon himself. Our sin was imputed to Christ, who was sinless. He had no sin except our own. And he took it freely upon himself. And then get this. What did that result in? That resulted in Christ imputing to us his righteousness. Why? Because we have no righteousness of our own. See how it fits perfectly. See, this is God's gospel. This is the message of salvation. The only sense in which Jesus was made sin was by the imputation of our sin to him. He was personally pure in every way, yet officially culpable. He was personally holy, yet forensically guilty. Blows your mind. But in dying on the cross, Christ did not become evil like we are, nor do we do redeemed sinners become inherently as holy as he is. God credits believers' sin to Christ's account, and he credits his righteousness to ours. Well, also, as we talk about the content of the gospel, we need to do so in a winsome manner. And he says here, basically, in verse 6, this is quick, let your speech always be with grace. Notice the word always. Always. It's back to that living a life for Christ, right? It's talking about consistently. Let it be part of your life. Uh, In light of, of Paul's repeated emphasis on grace here, It probably means that our presentation of the gospel should be permeated with God's grace. See, you you, you hear some people who share the gospel with people and you think, man, what are they so angry about? You know, they're up there shouting and screaming, their face is red and sweating and, you know, they're yelling things and telling everybody they're going to. Wait a minute. You know, we have to be careful with that. I mean, the content, what they're sharing may be true. They may be going to hell. But we have to do it graciously. It includes speaking graciously to others. And see, as a sinner who has received God's grace, we should naturally be able to share that grace with others. So we don't want to speak in a condescending manner or condemning manner to someone who is outside of Christ. And and the church has got this sorely wrong for years. I've heard church people, people who are longtime Christians, talk about those who are without Christ. And it's almost like, man, they wish them to go to hell. They think, you know, yeah, those sinners, you know, we stay away from people like that. We don't fraternize with those kind of people. Boy, how are they going to hear the message of the gospel? Live a, be, be gracious with them. And then also be interesting. Look at what he says. Let your speech always be with, seasoned with salt. Now notice, he's not saying use salty language. Okay, he's not going out there, you don't do that. You don't go out there and cuss them out like a sailor would and say, yeah, you're going to go to hell. No, salt had two main uses in Paul's day. It was a preservative that would cause, that would help food from spoiling. And that has the idea that our our speech should be pure. It should be free from corruption. It should show those whose lives are, are spoiled due to sin how they can be restored through the gospel. That's what our words should do. But also salt was used as a spice. It was used to make food more tasty. I mean, don't you love a steak with a little salt and pepper on it? And you know, sometimes you know people put all this stuff. Oh, I marinated it for three weeks in this stuff. I just like a steak with pepper and salt and on the barbecue. That's good enough for me. That's great. I don't know why I'm talking about food. I'm hungry, probably. 
But our presentation of the gospel should stimulate people's taste to want more, not repel them. See, so stop and think about that. When you share Christ, are people walking away going, oh, man, I never want to run into that guy again. See, sometimes we want to oversell. We want to overtell. Someone asks us a simple question. I noticed you leave on Sunday mornings from your house. Where do you go? And we think, wow, God's opening the floodgates of this giant door. And so we spend the next hour and a half, you know, whipping out tracks. And and all they're saying is, where do you go? They didn't ask you anything else. A simple, well, I go to church on Sunday. That's it. Leave it there. You don't have to double down and, you know, I got to get them to say the sinner's prayer. You don't have to do that. God's perfectly in control of this situation. All right? And so so just remember, be gracious. Be interesting. Okay, um, share with them maybe some truth that God has given you, whatever it might be. Um, and then thirdly, be sensitive. Be sensitive. Notice that he says here that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I've met some Christians that have been through evangelism classes, and they're so indoctrinated, they just go out and they're like on auto, you know, boom, and they go through their little presentation, and whether the person's listening or not. And if they can close the deal, they close the deal and they move on to the next person. There's no rejoicing with them. There's no follow-up. There's nothing. Because they pinned the little badge of honor on their chest saying, I led someone to Christ. Well, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying you should know how you should respond. Look at what he says, to each person. Just because you share the Lord with your neighbor in one way, that may not be the same way you share the Lord with someone else. We have to be sensitive. Now, I may not share a full-fledged thing of the gospel because of time or whatever. But you know what? You get in what you can. You, you don't, if, the, if God opens the door this much, that's how much you go in. If he opens it up real wide, then you walk through. And you do it in faith. It's not how much you know. It's not how much you've memorized. If they ask you a question, you know what, that you can't answer, you know what the best question is? I don't know. <laughs> Don't try to fudge it. Don't, well, you know, I, I think the Bible says somewhere, uh, I don't have my references. Say, you know what? That's a really good question. I don't know. <laughs> but I can find out for you. Okay, just be honest. Be open. If you don't know something, you don't know something. And see, God will honor your humility and your lack of knowledge. He'll infuse you with a knowledge that comes only from the Holy Spirit because you're trusting him to use you anyway. And you'll walk away from some situations going, man, I don't even know where that stuff came from. I just share with that person. See? And it, why? Because you're trusting in God to use you for his glory. Well, let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, go enjoy our fellowship food over in the fellowship hall. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of evangelism that you give to us to participate with you in sharing this wonderful message that Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death. And uh, he took upon himself the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him and those who cry out and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need, I need something more in my life. I want you to forgive my sin. I want to commit my life to you. He'll answer that prayer and he'll transform you. He'll give you new life in Christ, the Bible speaks about. And your sins will be forgiven, past, present, future. And you'll know what it means to be in right communion with your creator, God. And you'll have a new desire to read his word and to fellowship and to witness and to talk about his glorious deeds in your life. And so, Lord, we pray for each soul that's represented here today. If they've yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would understand it's just that simple. It's, it's, it's a matter of God working in your life and bringing you to a point of repentance, a change of, of mind, a, a willingness to turn from sin to God 
And we do that through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can cry out to him right now, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Help me understand this truth I'm hearing this morning. And for us believers, I pray that you would equip us with the word, with the spirit, as we go out into this lost and dying world, souls to be saved. We, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.